Welcome to the Mentor Podcast. This is the first episode of the podcast, and today I'd like to introduce me and the reasons for wanting to start this podcast, and also use myself as the first um, example, if you like, about telling your story as a man of how you grew up, the influence in your life, and where you are now. So today will just be just be me, and I'll use myself as that first subject. So I guess the first question is, what is this podcast about? Because let's face it, there's a lot of podcasts in the world at the moment. I just saw that there is a lack of discussion about something that's very, very close to my heart, and that subject is masculinity. For it's good and it's bad where we are in the world at the moment, there seems to be a problem. And it's not a problem that's occurred today or yesterday, but it's been happening over the last, I'd say, 20, 30, 40 years, where, one, the role of man has changed. And that, you know, has been driven a lot of that by society, environment, and there was some change that was needed 100%. But what we have now is we have, I think, a generation of men who are very much lost. They're not quite sure what masculinity is. They're being told by media uh, and society that masculinity is toxic. And we'll talk about that too. And they don't know what it means to be a man anymore. And I think, although that sounds like a very um, non-specific thing to say, you can see the effects of men in society who are not comfortable with who they are, believe in themselves and know how to act appropriately. Now I'm going to talk particularly about Australian men because that's where I live, been here for 18 years. But I think the problems here are replicated around the world in different degrees of uh, impact. But you know, I'm talking specifically about Australian men. How do I get interested in this subject? Well, it's something I think I've always been interested in, but in my 13 years as a copper, which has just come to the end recently, I guess I saw so many reoccurring themes through the people that I dealt with. And those themes, you know, are very much related to... uh, men, how they grow up, the circumstances of which they grow up, the influences on their lives, and the things that have driven them to where they are at that time. And I'm talking about talking to people who are the bad guys, in inverted commas, and victims as well. You know, this is not just about, oh, all crooks are like this. I've seen uh, all sides of the story, and I see, you see these reoccurring themes which I want to talk about. And while during my policing career, um, this I guess this came to a head in about 2017, I started uh, working as what's called a human source handler. And to explain what that basically is, is that you're somebody who runs informants. So you recruit informants, you get information from informants in exchange for either reduced sentencing or money. Uh, and that information is passed on to other areas of the police. What you do, though, is you build up 
a surprisingly close relationship with these people. And what you discover very quickly is that you are probably the only person or one of the only people that's ever actually listened to them. And they tell you their story. They tell you where they, you came, they came from. You start to see, and for me it was a real kind of epiphany moment, you really start to understand that A, these people are not so different from you or me, and B, what got them here, you know, is, yes, it's their fault in that they made poor choices as an adult, but their formative years, their start in life, the people in their lives who are supposed to direct them in the right way, they failed them. And now we have a broken human in society, not functioning correctly, hurting other people. So how did they get there and how did we get where we are now? So I started looking into the problems of masculinity and what's happened, what's changed. There's no way to talk about this subject without talking about something that's difficult to discuss and maybe triggering for some people. So if that's you, just be aware. The simple fact is that we have a male mental health problem in Australia and the world in general that is unprecedented and seemingly only getting worse. So I looked at the last figures I could find, which is 2020. So in that year, there were 2,384 male suicides in Australia. 2,384. Now, you may think, oh, Australia's got 25 million people. That's not really that many people, is it? I can only relate to you my experience as a police officer dealing with suicide. And it is devastating for those left behind. So I just look at 2,384 broken families that will probably never recover from that. 75% of all the suicides in Australia, and this is reflected around the world, are men. The median age of death was 44, and the age range of men who kill themselves in the most numbers is 40 to 54, so that's 27% in that uh, age in the age bracket. And it seems to be a subject that attracts very little attention, as far as I can see. Everyone acknowledges it's a problem. It's discussed sometimes in the media, but it just doesn't get the attention it deserves. And I, I can only relay my own experience. Again, it's 13 years as a copper 
in all that time, I couldn't tell you how many suicides I went to. I don't know. I can't remember. But I can tell you I only ever went to one female. And I hadn't really thought about that until fairly recently. Because in my last position before I left, I attended a number of male suicides. And, you know, bear in mind that where I live, most people would say is one of the best places to live in Western Australia, if not Australia, if not the world. Why are men taking their own lives? What drives it? For discussion. What else can we say about men in the last 20, 30, 50 years? Well, it's been established that um, testosterone has declined by, and there's different figures here, about 50% over the last 30 to 50 years. I'll say that again. So male testosterone, the hormone that is so instrumental in making a man feel like a man, affects everything from energy levels through to um, mental health, sex drive, you name it, has declined by 50% in the last 30 to 50 years. That should scare the living shit out of everybody, particularly if you're a man, you know? The simple truth today is that uh, a 20-year-old man today has roughly half the testosterone of his granddad at the same age. What has happened? These things don't just happen on their own. Numerous factors have caused it. So what are these reasons? What's driven testosterone down so much? Well, I think uh, if you look at work, work for many in particular has changed dramatically in the last 50 years. Uh, there's a lot less manual work being done than was done certainly 50 years ago and even 20 years ago. A lot of men, I've read figures as high as 80%, now work in jobs that can be described as sedentary. So we're just not moving uh, and we're not doing uh, tasks that just naturally through, whereas being outside in the sunlight or physical work help to naturally keep our testosterone higher. You know, obesity, you know, the simple fact is we are fatter than we ever have been. And you only have to walk around your local high street, shopping center, whatever, and just see how many men have got the, uh, the man bog going on. And it's even become almost like um, in the media, oh, is a man bod so bad? Look, I don't care what you look like. Entirely up to you. But what I'm not going to do is pretend the being obese is a positive thing for your health. And if you want any any kind of indication of how bad it is for your health, just look at the absolute epidemic of type 2 diabetes in Australia and around the world. You know, type 2 diabetes is 100%, okay, 99.9% caused by lifestyle. You have done that to yourself. You have eaten the food and drunk the drink, ignored the warning signs, and now you have a serious disease that may well kill you. It will certainly shorten your life. 
So there's no doubt at all to me that obesity plays a huge part in this. Now, physical activity generally, I think um, men are just not as physically active as they once were. It's to do with the way society has changed, I guess. But so few men these days are involved in team sports, things like that, which are not just good for your physical health, but mental health too. Um, are just not active with their kids the way they should be. You know, technology has come along and taken a giant dump on like dads playing with their kids, kicking a ball around. You know, the things that when I was a kid, we you had to do that because there wasn't really an alternative. But now we've got so many alternatives, there's so many reasons not to do that. And the knock-on effect you know, to your children you know, is massive, absolutely huge. Toxins, you know. It's uh, very easy to get accused of being a, a tinfoil hat wearer when you start talking about environmental toxins, EMFs, things like that let's look at the reality and this has been proven in numerous studies if you're a man and you're walking around all day with a mobile phone in your trouser pocket you're basically exposing your genitals to a constant stream of emf radiation and there's plenty of medical proof to say that's a really bad idea we are constantly surrounded by EMF fields these days. Is it a problem? Well, simple truth is uh, the evidence is not clear, but if you were just to be, you know, put my detective hat on here, let's look at the, uh, the evidence. Let's look at what's changed in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years because you could easily draw a conclusion that if we're doing things now we weren't doing 50, 60 years ago and there's been a massive impact, then there has to be some kind of you know correlation there. It's not necessarily causation, but these things are new to our lives. And now when we're at home with our family, we are literally surrounded by EMFs from the moment we wake to the moment we go to sleep and sometimes even whilst we're asleep. You know, do you turn your Wi-Fi off night when you go to bed? Because if you don't, that's just there all night, just gradually kind of affecting you. And it is affecting you. One other thing we have to talk about as well is the, the family unit, the nuclear family. The traditional image of you know, a family involving two parents with their children. Now that idea has increasingly been attacked from the media and society in general. It's been eroded. Um, I looked at some figures. So the most recent figures I could find for Australia, that 18% of children you know, grow up in a, a single parent family. And of that 18%, 86% are raised by their mother. Now, I'll say straight off the bat, women do a fantastic job of raising kids on their own. Men 
do a really shit job of being responsible for their children. If there's one thing in society that we could change, it would be that. Because, you know, my anecdotal experience is very simply, you take a man out of that parenting environment and the child suffers. Now, caveat, I'm not saying people should stay in abusive relationships. I'm not saying that. But unfortunately, too many people are happy to surrender their child's happiness and future development for their own short-term happiness. That's just the truth. I'm not saying that people should stay together purely for the kids, but if you've actually had kids, kid, whatever, you owe that child a good upbringing, a good childhood. Because those formative years are so important. Your happiness really doesn't count. And I'm sorry if people are offended by that. But if you've had a child, what matters is that child, not you. You don't get to be selfish. You don't get to miss going out with the lads. Or, oh, I don't get a chance to go to footy training anymore. Or whatever it is. Tough shit. You've had a child. Nothing's more important. And your influence on that child, be it boy or girl, will be felt throughout that child's life. Not just in those first few years, but forever. I'm 53 soon. There are things from my childhood that I know still affect me to this day. So everyone who has a child needs to realise you are the biggest influence on your child. And if you're not there, there's a massive hole. What's going to fill that hole? Probably not great things. So again, a lot of what I'm going to talk about on this podcast is responsibility. And there is no greater responsibility and joy than having children. And you owe them, I'm going to say oh, over and again, because you owe them a good childhood, the best you can do. It's not good enough to just kind of, oh yeah, she'll be right. Oh, me and the wife aren't getting on, so, you know, we're going to split up and the kids will be fine. Look, I'm not, again, I'm not saying you should stay together if it's an abusive relationship. That's just wrong. But if you think separation, divorce, whatever you want to call it, does not affect your children, you're just trying to make yourself feel better. Because it does, I've seen it, I've personally experienced it. And you are absolutely deluding yourself if you think that isn't the case. So I think that's a really important factor. 
So while we're talking about families and family units, we have to talk about domestic violence. The simple fact is, way into the 90% of domestic violence offenders, abusers, are men. As a society, you know, as, as males, we have to acknowledge that. That's the case. How do we get there? It's only getting worse. Now, the avenues to reporting it are improved, which means that it's getting reported more, so the figures aren't quite as uh, clear-cut as they may seem. And certainly, if we went back 10, 20, 30, the longer you go back, the less domestic violence was reported the more it was accepted and not spoken about. So we've come a long way in terms of righting some of that wrongs to make it easier for abused people who are predominantly females to access help and to uh, report what's going on. But that doesn't really tell you why it's happening. Again, I can only use my own anecdotal experience of dealing with domestic violence for 13 years. As a police officer, it forms, depending where you're working, a large part of your job. If you're a general duties police officer, which means they're the guys in blue who turn up to whatever job in your street, I would estimate that domestic violence probably makes up 30 to 50% of your daily workload, sometimes more than that. And if you're working uh, in certain communities, it will be significantly higher than that. There are places in Western Australia where the problem is endemic and still massively underreported. And that is a... It's a... It's a shame that we as men all carry. Things oh, well, I don't do that. That's great. Good on you. You shouldn't. I guess my challenge to other men is that is it happening in your sphere of friends or family? And what are you doing about that? We've got that friend that everyone knows that it gets on the gear or whatever, and then the, the, the missus cops it. You okay with that? What are you prepared to do about it? Because ultimately, if you don't do anything, you're basically saying that's okay. And it ain't. My view of domestic violence and domestic violence offenders from dealing with them is that this is not a problem of strong masculinity. I've never met somebody 
who's a domestic violence abuser, who's a strong, confident man, who's happy with his place in the world, who is, you know, uh, confident in himself, can communicate well, has empathy. They're none of those things. The people who are domestic violence abusers are the absolute opposite of that. They are weak. They are scared. And they are bullies who are picking on somebody weaker than them. So, what's happened with the crushing of masculinity and like positive masculine role models in society, I think has actually made the situation worse. And I think we now have to talk about what is masculinity, what is toxic masculinity. And finally, we should talk or think about uh, our culture, society and the media. There's been a real change in um, the male role models presented to the public in the last certainly 20 years. And as this cult of celebrity grows ever greater and greater through social media. I think there's a real lack of good men who are held up in society as people to to aim at. You know, everybody needs a role model. When you're young, and we'll talk about this later, it's really, really important. But even as an adult, you know, I look at uh, Australian culture and, you know, I genuinely struggle to think of people that I go, you know what, that's somebody I aspire to. There are some. There are some, and I'll talk about that a bit later as well. But it's rare. And you look at the, uh, the cultural sort of ideals that are held up now, and I don't think it's particularly helpful or positive. I don't want to pick on Shane Warne because, um, you know, he died and I feel terrible for his family. That's an awful thing to lose somebody at such a young age. But to many men in Australia, you know, Shane Warne was almost the, uh, the archetype of how to be a man. You know, he was uh, immensely talented. You know, you could say he had a God-given talent, if that's your thing. But there's no doubt he had a just a natural ability that by his own admission, he didn't really work that hard on for much of his career. And uh, he was, as many of us are, as all of us are, a highly flawed human. The difference being that his flaws were played out you know, to the public, to the media. But at the end of the day, he was the one that was caught with prostitutes and you know, all these kind of things which, you know, would have been horrendous for your family. And yet, there he is. State funeral. 100,000 people at the MCG to say goodbye to this great, you know, Australian male role model. And I say no. He's not a role model. His actions mean that he's not a role model. And if you as a man 
look at Shane Warne and go, oh yeah, good old Warney, what a life. You're just kind of excusing your own behaviour and you want to believe that you can carry on like that and be like Warney. The truth of it is, you need to be a better husband, a better father and a better man than him. If that upsets anybody, I'm sorry. But I feel very strongly about this, that we're, the role models um, that are being fed to us, and particularly to our young men these days, are not helping. They're part of the problem. We don't seem to be able to find uh, good, strong male role models in society in general, and that is contributing to the problem. So how do we fix this? Well, I guess ultimately that's what the podcast is about. The structure of the podcast is going to be um, speaking to interesting men who've got a story to tell. These people do not need to be in any way, shape or form, you know, have any kind of fame. In fact, I'd have to say that ordinary people who've lived extraordinary lives are far more interesting. But I want to get to the heart of what made that man who he is, good and bad. And do that through getting him to tell his life story. And saying, okay, well, who were those male role models when you were younger? Now, was it was your dad, other male relatives, school coaches, uh, a neighbour, whatever it is. Those people have been fundamental just fundamental in your development. So it's really interesting to hear about those people and to see the influence they had on you because ultimately, what am I trying to do with this podcast? I would just like people to realise that they are hugely influential on those around them, particularly so with children. But, you know, you can meet somebody once and you can have a big impact on their life in multiple ways. And as men at this present time, I think we need to be having good impacts on other men, whether they're our children, someone else's children, relatives, colleagues, complete bloody strangers. Never ever let an opportunity to be a positive influence, you know, to be a mentor pass you by. Because it's uh, such a important and precious thing. And we've lost it in many respects because of the changes in society, the way we relate to each other, how we communicate. We've just lost a lot of those things and society is the worst for that. So that's what I'd like to try and do. So today um, I'm going to start off with my story. Um, I'm going to talk about growing up, where I grew up, how I grew up, my family, uh, the influences on me growing up as a child into adulthood, being a father, 
what that meant to me and I guess where I am now and where I want to go in the future and how I want to try and make things better. So that's 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 what's coming up next. So I hope you're enjoying it so far and um, we'll now tell the story. So I was born in 1969 uh, in a little place called uh, Tankerton, which is in England. It's on the north coast of Kent and about uh, 100 kilometers from London. Um, I was the second child of my parents. Uh, my dad was a, uh, it was like a purchasing manager for a company that made toys. And my mum was predominantly a, uh, what you would call in those days, a housewife, although she did do some secretarial work and then moved into being a uh, old age carer in a home when I was a bit older. So I was born um, in a little hospital in Tankerton and I was second child, so I had a sister who was, uh, is... 16 years older than me and uh, I'll explain more about that as we go along as well when I was born my parents were older so my dad was 40 and my mum was I think 36 or 37 when I was born which these days is perfectly normal going back to you know that time the late 60s that's actually quite unusual people had children much younger back then so I've often thought and joked that um, I essentially was a bit of a mistake and I was probably a result of uh, maybe a night of uh, occasional passion someone's birthday but it was pretty unusual back then to have you know a child at 40 and when your you know your sibling was, was 16 years older so that was kind of uh, the start of it all and I Grew up in a place called Chessfield, which is a little village, basically, just up the road from where I was born. And that was uh, my start. It was very much a classic, I could call it English, lower, middle-class upbringing. And, uh, yeah, my upbringing, I look back on it now, that was pretty good. So growing up, and it's something really that I guess I was only aware of as I got older, was, to be honest, uh, fairly lonely in that uh, I didn't understand the reasons why, and I'll explain that later as well. You know, it was very much just a kind of three-person family unit, uh, and I spent the majority of my time with my mum. Uh, my dad worked a lot of hours, and uh, we never seemed to have uh, any other family around I uh, didn't see my sister I didn't know what was going on there I was too young to really understand that and um, you know things like Christmases and birthdays it was only ever kind of us and I didn't obviously contextualize that at the time because I was too young but I started being aware once you go to school and stuff that you know other people just seem to have you know much kind of bigger tighter families 
So I think what that gave me is, um, I, yes, I was a bit lonely, and I remember growing up wanting, wishing I had either uh, a big sister or big brother who was around, or, you know, a, a younger brother or sister, someone I could look after, because it was, um, yeah, it was a fairly solitary existence. In, in hindsight, it did give me the ability to um, be comfortable with my own comfortable company. So being on my own has never bothered me. But there was something missing. And how this kind of, I guess, presented itself to me was that once I started going to school and making friends, I started to become almost jealous of their family relationships or dynamics. Because, and again, you have to remember, by the time I went to sort of school, was making friends, you know, my dad was then sort of like in his mid to late 40s. And you know, being in your mid to late 40s in the 70s is not the same as being that age today. You know, it's almost like society has got younger in many ways. And uh, I used to get the piss taken out of me because um, people used to say, oh, is your granddad picking you up from school or you know, is he coming to watch you play football or whatever? Because he was just so markedly older than my friend's dad's. It's not his fault. He just was. So, and because of that, he wasn't as uh, physically active as other dads were because he was just older. You know, the other dads were sort of like in their late 20s or early 30s. So I kind of started to, uh, I guess, not consciously, but develop friendships with lads almost because they had a dad that was seemingly more accessible or just more relatable than my own. I remember I had a mate called um, Paul and his dad, John, was the uh, football coach. And, uh, you know, he was like uh, my first sort of like, um, almost like role model or, you know, I looked at him and I thought, well, that's how you... You'd be a dad and like you coach the school team and uh, you know you always run around with your kids and I was jealous of that growing up and uh, it wasn't my dad's fault and as I got a bit older I started to understand a bit more of the family dynamics so my dad's dad I think I only met him I can't even remember once but there may have been a few other occasions he died when I was probably about uh, five, maybe. And he was in his 80s. Um, my uh, dad's mum was in her 70s when I was a kid, you know, a young kid. Uh, on my mum's side, my mum's dad died before I was born, a long time before I was born. He died at quite a young age. He was actually a copper. And her mum, again, was in her 60s when I was a kid. So it was just this ageing sort of like demographic. And as I look back on it now, what I realised was that although I wished my dad in particular was uh, a lot more like you know, other people's dads at a superficial level, it wasn't his fault. You know, his dad, um, from what I now know about him, was a very, very strict unemotional, uninvolved father, as was kind of the way things were back then. I later discovered that um, there was a whole 
load of family information from a dad's family and from a, him and mum got together. I didn't know about because it was, it was never told to me. I didn't find out until I was older. And I guess as I look back in hindsight, you know, my dad passed away in uh, 1999. I used to be a bit angry, I think, that you know, I didn't have the kind of relationship with my dad that I, I wanted to have, that I saw that or I perceived that uh, my friends and peers had. But I just think he did the best he could with his upbringing. And you know, it's another lesson that those, you know, the things that you get you are taught by your parents, the examples you've seen, um, how to behave, yeah, that, that was, that's what shapes you. And in my dad's case, you know, he's someone who lived through the Second World War fought in the Korean War which he never ever spoke to me about ever and uh, you know he was just doing the best he could so as I continued to grow um, up going to secondary school I continued to have I suppose or I sought out I guess role models from the point of view of like school coaches things like that there were a number of coaches at school uh, there's a guy at my secondary school, Mr. Beveridge, I think his name was, who was the he was the uh, football soccer coach, as well as he was a teacher. I think it was history. I can't remember now, but he was somebody that um, took an interest in his students and, and you know, took an interest in me, and uh, you know, I, I really looked up to him, and he was very helpful to me. He was somebody that uh, you know I, I looked to, you know, I aspired to be. You know, so from my teenage years, um, school wasn't particularly enjoyable for me. Um, I went to a school that was quite a long way where I lived, so I used to get a bus there every day, it was about an hour and a half trip. And what unfortunately meant that um, the kids I grew up with around where I lived didn't go to that school, so I had a kind of one set of friends out of school and another set of friends I only saw at school. But, you know, it wasn't bad. There was a bit of bullying going on, but uh, nothing too horrific. Um, and I threw myself into into sport primarily. Um, we had quite a successful football team. Played rugby. Uh, I'd done judo from when I was younger. And uh, if I think back now, all of those sports had a strong kind of male sort of uh, coach. Somebody that, again... I looked up to and um, I respected and really helped me to learn just some important life lessons about hard work and discipline. Now, in any sport, I've, I have zero natural talent in any way, shape or form. I'm just not one of those people who's blessed with uh, natural abilities sporting-wise, so I had to just train really, really hard and I was very committed to my training and being you know, as best as I could be in any given sport and um, yeah, that meant that um, I was always in the sports teams at school and um, that was really made for me made school kind of bearable and um, so where are we now so I left school uh, when I was 16 which was a hugely controversial decision uh, my parents very much wanted me to go to do what's in England called A-levels and then go to university 
and uh, I just had a a gutful, to be honest. And uh, I just didn't want to do that. I just didn't see what the point was. I'd had enough of school, and even though everyone tells you, oh, yeah, don't worry, we'll be different at university or whatever, it just seemed to be more and more kind of like of the same thing. So I was keen to just uh, to get out and just start working, do something. I had uh, ambitions going up, growing up, basically. The only things I really wanted to do were either go in the police because my mum's family had a history of police going back to like the 1890s in the Met or to join the army. I wanted to do officer training with the Royal Marines. But unfortunately, uh, you know, things just never quite panned out. So I left school, uh, much to the annoyance of my parents. Uh, started going to college, but I also hate that, so I just never went. I uh, started working full-time in preparation for applying to both the police and the army um, when I was 18. So I worked away, started working at uh, Tesco's, which uh, is a supermarket chain in uh, England. And it was there in 1985 that I met uh, my wife, although... Back then, she wasn't my wife. She was my boss. Some would say not much has changed. Um, but that was when we first met um, and became friends from there. So while this is happening, honestly, the, my relationship with my parents, particularly my dad, was at a real all-time low. He just was really struggling to kind of relate to me, and I was struggling to relate to him. We had very little common ground. And we just argued a lot. He disagreed with my life choices. Um, I disagreed with his way of doing things. And it was just a kind of constant kind of conflict in the house, which uh, I know upset me and I'm sure upset him in hindsight. I wish we could take it all back. But um, yeah, I think I was just pushing at what had been quite a strict set of rules growing up. And again, with hindsight, I look back and... My dad instilled me with some really strong uh, values just in terms of you know, right and wrong responsibility. Things that are really important to me now um, came from him and I, I thank him for those. But we just didn't have a good relationship. Um, we were very different people and from very different generations. And I think he just saw the values and stuff of um, where are we now? We're, we're mid-80s. We're just very different to how we'd grown up. And uh, he was struggling with that. Um, he was very much of the, I guess, kind of stiff upper lip type of school of Englishmen. Don't display emotion. Um, keep it under your hat and uh, yeah, you'll be right sort of thing. And we just didn't have good, deep, intimate conversations about things. Anyway, so fast forward to 18, applied to um, the, the police, Kent Police, and also to the Royal Marines, and uh, basically failed the medical for both of them. Um, back in those days, you had to have what was called a minimum unaided standard of vision, and I'd been wearing glasses since I was seven, couldn't see very well at all without them. And even though you could wear contact lenses or glasses in both the police and the army, 
your eyes had to be a certain standard without anything and uh, mine weren't so that was the end of it that was kind of dreams or at least um, preconceived ideas about what I would do in my life were suddenly gone and it, it hit me pretty hard to be honest because you know I'm now 18 I'm just working in Tesco's as like a trainee manager but that wasn't ever what I really envisioned me doing in my life and uh, the things that I had thought I would do which I just took for granted that yes I would do one of those either of those or maybe both of them whatever were no longer on the table and that made things even worse to be honest yeah. at home um, I was angry and um, the relationship deteriorated from there I was just using alcohol to kind of numb everything I would just go out on a Friday Saturday Sunday and just absolutely written off and uh, I'm sure my parents were pretty worried about me at the time because uh, I wasn't really communicating with them they weren't really communicating with me it was just a, a not a happy time um, so this really continued um, for probably about three or four years up until about 21 just this constant stream of just drinking and socializing and just very short-term relationships um just yeah just almost like kind of just drinking myself into oblivion at the weekend to try and get through the next week and that's when kind of it's funny when sort of like your life changes and you don't the time think that you want it but you do so here I am I'm now at 22 and I've had and lost numerous jobs I've been engaged that didn't work out too good um, I bought a house I almost got repossessed that wasn't too great either I think fair to say probably the lowest point of my life um, my parents because of what had happened with the house and stuff and the job, you know, got sacked from the job had really really kind of uh, not washed their hands of me and they'd never do that but it just meant the relationship was so broken down it was very hard and they were trying to help me but I was just angry as well and uh, I ended up working back at Tesco's and um, ended up going out on a night out and that's when I bumped back into my wife. Obviously, it wasn't my wife then. Uh, she'd been just coming out of a serious relationship, and she had two children. And it's funny how things happen. I think if you'd asked both of us at the time, um, both of us would have told you that the last thing we wanted or needed was uh, another relationship. But that's exactly what we got. And uh, before you know it, um, you know, I ended up moving in with her and became you know, instant you know, stepdad to two beautiful girls who at the time were you know, three years old and 18 months. And bizarrely, this is exactly what I needed. There's a, a quote from Jordan Peterson that's in his first book that talks about, you know, you should basically, I'm ad-libbing this slightly, find the biggest load you can and pick it up. 
And that's exactly what I did without realizing its importance. And you talk about seminal moments in your life. And that was probably mine. Because it straight away gave me a responsibility and stopped me being such a frankly selfish, um, self-absorbed little prick who was just like feeling sorry for himself and what was happening in the world to me. And made me think about looking after these kids who, you know, I was never trying to be there. You know, I wasn't there to be a replacement dad. But, you know, I was there a carer and uh, at the time uh, my wife worked evenings. I worked sort of early mornings. So every evening I'd come home from work at like four o'clock in the afternoon and then she'd go off to work at five o'clock. So I was, yeah, I was the carer, you know. I was looking after these two kids and it's such a an obvious thing to say, but kids just want someone to show them attention and to take interest in their lives. And I just found, you know, the unconditional love you get back is just priceless. And uh, it was absolutely the makings of me. Now, while this, uh, I start then being a a dad, you know, a stepdad, but you know, I, I just looked saw myself as you know raising these children, trying to the best I could, and and learning on the job because I had no experience. But it's something I loved, and it's something that it was almost like a rebound from my parents where they weren't very um, emotionally open. I want to be really emotionally open to, to the kids and to give lots of hugs and tell them I loved them and yeah, not leave anything unsaid, I suppose. And um, at that point, I abandoned all my male friends, all of whom thought I was absolutely stuck staring bonkers anyway because there I was you know young free and single and I was uh, you know shacking up with somebody who had children and going from being just all disposable income to no now I've got bills and mortgage to pay and food to pay for and the kids their needs are more important than yours so I've been through a period of really having zero kind of male friends in my life at all and the weird thing was I didn't actually miss that at all. I didn't miss going out on the piss uh, and all that kind of stuff. I felt like I'd just done it to death. And uh, even though I didn't, if you'd asked me a year before that, if, if I could see myself in this situation, I'd have you know, told you to go away. It was exactly what I needed and uh, just an amazing, amazing time in my life for my maturing as a man. Because here I was, that literally turned me from an immature boy into a, a, a man and someone who had to be a provider, uh, who had to be a parent, and had to step up to responsibility. And uh, I think that's that was the making of me. I really believe that. If I hadn't done that, I don't know what would have happened. I, I'm not sure. I wasn't in a good place. So I don't know what would have happened, but it did, and it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, so there was that. that that's and we're now 
30 years after that um, initial kind of meeting with my now wife. And we got married uh, three years after meeting, two years, two and a half years. And uh, so this is our 30th year of being together as a couple. Um, now we've raised three children. Uh, we had our own daughter as well. Uh, and they're all, you know, good adults. And uh, that's my proudest achievement, really. By far, I think, you talk about influence and legacy and all those kind of things. You know, your children are your best advert you know, for, for you as a person. And um, I'm very proud of all three of them. But what I realized as, you know, being a father um, is that you are just always kind of like, um, uh, you're always um, performing. I mean that from the point of view that there's no, there's no, there's no off switch. You can't try and be the best dad you can and then just go, oh, that's it, I've got to go for that. Your kids watch you. Your kids emulate you and your kids learn from you. And if men just take one thing, just realize that point, that the influence you have on your kids um, will stay with them throughout their entire life. Anyway, so I should explain my family a bit, I suppose, because it makes things back a bit more sense. So um, when I was, when I got together with, with my wife, um, we spoke about my sister and stuff I hadn't really seen for years. And, you know, she encouraged me to contact her and go and see her, which I did. Now, um, you know, she's 16, 17 years older than me. Um, so I was like 22, 23 and she would have been like in her early 40s or late 30s. A couple of kids uh, married. And what I discovered was, uh, much to my surprise, because no one ever told me this growing up, is that my sister had met her husband, still married, um, when she was at university. And her husband was from Iran. Even though he had an English name, and he went to... English private school, actually went to school with Freddie Mercury. Um, his parents, and his dad in particular, was one of the aides to the Shah of Iran. And so when the Ayatollah took over, which I think was 77, uh, the family had to leave because uh, if they stayed there, they would have been killed. Uh, and anyway, they met and fell in love. And my parents, in particular my mum, basically cut them off because you know, he was an Arab and he was a dark-skinned person and uh, purely because of that um, they had no contact for a long time and no one told me this so I just grew up to be honest yeah thinking my sister just wasn't interested in me because I never saw her um, but yeah the, the simple fact was that it was actually a decision by my parents to go that way. So that was a bit of a surprise, to be honest. And uh, there was more. So I also discovered, which again, no one ever told me, 
that my mum and dad's family had had a massive falling out because way back in the, what were we talking about, the uh, 50s, maybe late 40s, um, when my dad and mum got together, my dad was from quite a middle class family in England and my mum was from a East End London, very much working class family. And this was uh, this caused issues between the families. And it turns out that uh, my sister, my, my dad, had three sisters. And they disowned them, like my mum and dad, after they got married. So this is what really does my head in. You've been disowned by a family for no reason other than basically you're from the wrong class. Which is shit. So what do you do? You basically do the same thing to your own daughter because she's married somebody who's wrong colour. Humans are weird, honestly. So I actually have a, probably, maybe, a large part of my family that uh, I've never met. have no intention of meeting, to be honest. People who who would actually do that, I haven't really got a lot of interest in, to be honest. And um, yeah, so that's explained a lot of things explained why we never had anybody around when i was a kid growing up because there wasn't anybody you know we were literally uh, on our own and we had also managed to cut off our other family and my my sister so yeah that was uh, a really strange moment and it made me even more determined to just to, to make the family the center of everything because i just don't understand that I know families fall out. I get that. You know, we've all had arguments and rows, etc. But to go to that length, to that degree, is just so sad and so petty. Life is such a, it's just a cliche. Life is so short. Why do that to people that you're you know, related to? Doesn't mean you get on. You don't have to like you know, love people that you're related to. That's not the case at all. But you know they are your flesh and blood. And like that, you know, I obviously was denied any kind of uh, family contact with them and my own sister growing up. And uh, yeah, it's just a sad state of affairs. So that really kind of uh, started off us towards kind of our. our our time together, uh, we got married in 95. Um, interestingly enough, my relationship with my dad actually started to improve because much as I think there was a bit of horror, or well, there was a bit of horror on my family's perspective of me having a relationship with somebody who had children already, I think my dad saw in me that I'd actually um, stepped up and you know done... You know, been a man and taken responsibility. I think that was something that he appreciated. And uh, we started to kind of rebuild our relationship. Um, when uh, my daughter, our daughter, came along, that was the absolute apple of uh, his eye. And, uh, you know, we became much closer. It still wasn't a uh, super close uh relationship and now I say this without any I'm not looking for sympathy here you know me and my dad never had like a hug you know in our entire lives together 
and uh, he just found that side of things extremely difficult and just something he couldn't break through. Um, sadly, and this is one of the ironies of life, after being a workaholic his entire life and having to be dragged kicking away and screaming away from work, uh, at the age of 67, I think he was, initially driving my mum up the wall because he was just used to being at work. Um, he ended up getting pancreatic cancer. And from the time he got it to the time he died was probably just over a year. And it was a, a really sad time for him because he'd finally, after many years of working, it was his time to relax and retire. Yeah, so, and then my dad passed away. Um, it was another one of those really important uh, epoch moments of your life, uh, losing a parent. I was, actually he died 10 days before my 30th birthday. And it was uh, obviously deeply upsetting. Um, although we had you know, resolved a lot of issues before he passed away and were much closer. It was just sad that he'd finally got the chance to relax and he had visibly kind of relaxed. Um, I was enjoying being a grandparent. And then life plays this horrible card on you. It'll come in. My personal view on why my dad got cancer and died like that is that he'd spent his entire life stressing about stuff, stressing about having enough money and putting money by and the future and everything else and probably me as well. And it's almost like he finished work and all this accrued cortisol for 70 years just kind of came out. And he literally went to the doctors because he thought he had a hernia. And they did a scan and he had a, a tumour the size of a grapefruit. And seeing him pass away and literally, I mean, it was... Uh, he just wasted away before your very eyes. It was very sad. And that moment changed my life. It made me realize that, um, it, is, it is again an ultimate cliche, but life is so short and you've got to take opportunities as they come along and take chances in life. My dad never did. And that was his way. He was always played everything safe and I knew I'd inherited those traits from him. But his passing was the sort of drive that ultimately made us move to Australia, um, which happened in 2004. Uh, and that was an incredibly stressful time. You know, moving three kids outside the world. We moved to Perth, a place we haven't been to before because I've offered a job there. And it was interesting coming into the the Australian culture, which, although obviously is very similar in some ways to England, it's also very different, and particularly the male culture. It was strikingly different. It was like, how can I describe this? So when I was in the 80s, they said the Paul Hogan show on in England, and uh, though obviously things had changed from then, it still felt like it was a very different kind of male culture here uh, than it was in England. Um, noticeably so, it was just more, I guess, blokey. And you know, men just seemed to spend more sort of blokey time together than they did 
or as I did in England. And uh, alcohol was a huge part of the culture here. It shocked me how much people drunk, you know, and uh, something that, you know, you end up doing yourself because it's, you're trying to be sociable. And before you know it, you've got a beer fridge, which was a, a revelatory thing, quite frankly, having a fridge just for beer. But we loved Australia. We loved Western Australia. And it was, although hard with the kids, um, it was a great place to, for, for children to grow up and the opportunities to have an outdoor lifestyle um, were fantastic. Um, and it was you know, a good time to settle in a new country, to, to have that kind of cultural change, albeit everyone still speaks English. Uh, it was fantastic. And um, I don't know, but I wonder if my dad hadn't died the way he died, would I have actually taken that chance? I don't think I would. I think looking back now, it just made me realise that your life is for living and you've got to get out there and do it. Um, so, you know, we actually lived in Perth and uh, I had a job uh, working um, for a big footwear company as a national retail manager and I was travelling all the time. I had what many people would look at would be a bit of a dream job. I travelled, had a, you know, company credit card, blah, 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 blah money good money and I absolutely hated it just didn't I kind of had this epiphany that the job I had had zero importance in the scheme of things ultimately I was just a highly paid shoe salesman and it wasn't good enough so about 2000 and I'm going to say 6 maybe 7 the advert came on the TV it was the step forward adverts for the West Australian Police Force. And I said to my wife, you know what? There's still a part of me that uh, would want to do that job if I got the chance. And she's like, well, you know, why don't you look into it and apply? And I did look into it. And the money was uh, appalling to start off with, at least. So I said, look, oh, you know, I've got three kids. That's, you know, private school, blah, 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 blah. I can't justify that kind of pay cut and I put it out of my mind. And then the old saying, be careful what you wish for, 2008, September, the global financial crisis came along. And uh, a very, very long story short, all shoes made in China are paid for in US dollars. And the US dollar is pegged to the Australian dollar at a certain exchange rate. And uh, when the GFC happened, the Australian dollar dropped like 30% overnight. And the company I was working for um, decided to make everybody who wasn't directly related to them, because it was run by three families, redundant. So there we go, 2008. So how old how was I there? Uh, just coming up, uh, yeah, 38, 39. Made redundant. And uh, I went home, spoke to the wife, and said, now, what do I do? And she goes, well, you haven't really got any excuses anymore, have you? You might as well apply for the police. And that's what I did, and I joined the police in October 2009. And uh, for me, it was about finding a purpose, because I think... Another really important thing for a man is to have that sense of purpose. What are you doing with your life? What's what's your contribution? 
and you know I wanted to, to in some small way make where I lived Western Australia a better place and, and I saw uh, service in the police as a way to do that and uh, look mostly to be honest yeah, though I've recently left I had a fantastic career I've done some really really interesting things in it um, I've worked all over the state and uh, I've been a detective I've been a frontline police officer I've been a human source handler I've worked in organized crime I've worked in gang crime um, I've been a child interviewer I've done lots of really interesting things and I have zero regrets about my career and the fact that I left but that mission came to an end and uh, the way things changed it wasn't the same for me anymore and uh, it just got to the point where um, I wasn't happy with a person that I saw looking back in the mirror because I'd been asked to do things that were not consistent with my values and I did not see as policing and I'm not going to go deeply into that now but it's um yeah it was the right time for me to leave and that brings me to what I'm doing now so I'm 52 53 soon and I see my new mission really is just trying to again serve but in a different way now you know I genuinely want to help people particularly I want to help men just be better, be healthier, physically and mentally, and just try and just, if we can try to find a way to help the next generation, that's what drives me now, and that's what excites me. And this podcast, I guess, is part of that. So what do I need from people listening? Well, I'd like you to think about your own lives. I'd like to think about who were the influences in your lives? And genuinely, if, if you have an interesting story to tell and you're happy to talk about your sort of like your upbringing and how you grew up and your influences, let me know because I'd be really interested in talking to you. I want to speak to people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different races, because we all have something to bring to this pot of masculinity. And if we all add into it, maybe we can make it better because the way it is now, the future, to be honest, scares me. So there we have it. That's the end. Episode one of the Mentor Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Just listen to me whine on for however long it's been. Um, I think there's some important things to be discussed, and I look forward to discussing them with you. If you have questions or comments or whatever, please leave it on the uh, relevant um what should we call it? We're at host site. Leave us a review if you could. If you thought it was shit, please tell me that. If you thought it was okay, tell me that too. It's uh, I want to make something that people can enjoy listening to. And I think in general, we're going to try and keep this down to a manageable length um, because there's enough long podcasts in the world. And I want to make this something that can maybe give people a few pearls of wisdom and help them on their way as they go through life. So uh, much love and respect to everybody out there. And... Um, you know, to the men that are just battling on, doing the right thing, supporting their families, protecting their families, doing the right thing in society, you're the heroes to me. So keep doing that. Keep making hard decisions and keep carrying a heavy load. All the best. See ya.